Well, turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would, or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke, chapter 14. You know, before we get to our sermon today, I just want to say a few words about how important this particular day is in the life of our church, uh, especially Fort Thomas and especially me personally. Uh, Lord willing, Fort Thomas will celebrate our 10th birthday in a few months. And over the past 10 years, to varying degrees, the Fort Thomas campus has not had my consistent pastoral presence as their campus pastor because on the Sundays that I preached, I would have to go to the Florence campus in order for the message to reach both or all three of our campuses over the years. Now, you need to know that the Fort Thomas campus is incredible. It's all they've ever known. They've always been supportive. They've always been encouraging. When they arrive at church and don't see me, I get texts from different ones that tell me they're praying for me, that they're looking forward to hearing the sermon, that they're looking forward to to seeing me uh, come back next week. They are the least crotchety, least complaining, kindest, most gracious people I've ever had the pleasure of worshiping with and pastoring, and I'm truly jealous of nobody. I was in a conversation with someone who attended both Newport and Fort Thomas over the years one time, and I actually asked her, just because we were talking, I was like, what do you think about the fact that I'm not at the campus as much as other campus pastors are? And I thought she put it well when she said, you know, it's kind of like having a dad who has to travel for work a lot. You don't resent him for it. It's the only dad you ever knew, but it's still better when he's home. And I thought that really captured the sentiment of what it feels like to be part of the Fort Thomas campus, but not always have the campus pastor there. Throughout this year, throughout 2022, the operations and audiovisual teams have made the necessary changes to our technology so that I can do what I'm doing right now, that I can now preach from Fort Thomas instead of Florence, and I can be here more often, which is always where I want to be, and this is the first Sunday where that's taking place. And so before I get into our time in the Word, I just want to thank the elders for this decision. I want to thank Pastor Todd Richmond. I want to thank Lee Nordine. I want to thank Zach Allison and our audiovisual teams at both the Florence and Fort Thomas campuses for making this day a possibility. I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know the hours and work it took to get us here, and I'm really, really grateful for you. I want to thank our entire church family, all three campuses, for their consistent, generous, sacrificial giving is unto the Lord such that we could do things like this without having to launch a fundraising campaign or say no to other ministry endeavors in order to do something like this. Uh, Ministry costs money, and God has consistently provided that over the years through our commitment to giving is unto the Lord. So thank you for doing that. And finally, I want to thank the Florence campus as you begin to receive the sermons both in person as well as on video. I'm praying and have been praying that your experience will be the same as Newport, Fort Thomas, and Independence, that you'll see how God is faithful to feed us with his word no matter what type of dish it's served upon. And please know that we, the Fort Thomas campus branch of our church's family tree, are grateful especially for you today as I stand before my church family in person, preach from this pulpit, and am finally able to work from home at last. But 
we have a sermon to preach. We have God's word to look at. And so hopefully you're at Luke 14 right now. Uh, And you know what? Whether you are reading from a Bible, whether you're reading from an app in your lap, whether you're reading right from the outline itself, I want to celebrate the word of God. And I want to pay special attention to that, which is why before I preach, I ask us, if you're physically able, would you please stand as we read and honor God's holy word. Follow along as I read aloud Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it not lawful? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so today we're back on our walk through, our crawl through, really, the Gospel of Luke, after we took a break for the summer to spend time in other parts of the Bible, particularly the book of Esther. In picking up from where we left off, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 14, looking at the six verses that I just read. Uh, so let's take another look at that account and, uh, that we just read and see what's happening. Let's take a little more of a focused look on each of those verses, if we could. If you look at verse 1, it sets the scene for us in telling us that on a Sabbath day, he, meaning Jesus, essentially was invited to lunch after the worship service that had just taken place at the synagogue. This was a pretty common thing, uh, not unlike perhaps many of you that go out to eat after worship services or gather at someone's home for lunch. This was the midday Sabbath meal. Now, verse 1 also tells us that this took place, quote, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, quite frankly. It could have been the leader of one of, uh, of the local synagogue, maybe the local campus pastor of sorts. It could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't know. But since it was at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, this would have been more of than, more, not just a lunch. It would have been more of a gathering of an elite gathering of people that we, than we might realize as we look at it. It would be Pharisees. It would be scribes. It would be other social elites. It would be who's who of first century Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees were always looking. This is something you have to know. They were always looking for honor and prestige so that they would only associate themselves with people who were either equals with them or who would possibly elevate their status in the eyes of others. They loved to name drop. They loved to be around people who would make other people think that they are a big deal. They never invited someone to a meal like this if they thought that person was beneath them, ever. That never happened. And we'll come back to that a bit later, but please keep that in mind. Pharisees hang out with people whom they view as equals to them or people who can make them look a little bit better. More on that later. But take a look at verse 1. It also says that they were what? Watching him carefully. Okay, and there's a a Greek word used there, paratereo, which, you're welcome, which in Greek just means to watch closely. But here's, here's the thing. Whenever it's used in the Gospels, there's a very sinister tone to it. Like as if people are lurking or spying, just watching and waiting to pounce. And we can relate to that in in English, right? 
Because if we would say, I'm watching you, that sounds like we're saying it maybe to a, a child who's like, mommy, watch me, daddy, watch me, so-and-so, watch me. Like, I'm watching you versus me go, I'm watching you, right? Like, those are the same words with a very different tone. Like, I'm watching you or I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm watching you. That sounds very sinister to it. And so in the Gospels, this term, this, ter- this Greek term, paratereo, is could be like paratereo or paratereo. Like, it could be really, really, I'm not sure if that's how they would have said it, but there's a sinister tone to it. Every time it shows up in the Gospels, it's they're watching someone, they're watching Jesus, and this is not cool. They're not watching Jesus in case he does a cartwheel. They're watching in a sinister way, in a suspicious way, spying, just waiting to pounce on him. That's where we find ourselves in this account. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Uh, Dropsy or edema. This is a medical condition in which the body abnormally retains fluids and causes significant swelling. It in and of itself is not a disease, but the symptom of a disease, usually related to the lungs, the liver, the heart, the kidney. And so this person had edema. And the Jewish leaders of that time uh, thought things like this would definitely be an example of the judgment of God. Uh, you'll remember perhaps elsewhere in the Gospels, John, I believe it's chapter 9, where they ask uh, Jesus with regards to someone who was born with a disability, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents? They don't ever ask Jesus, did somebody sin that he would be born like this? The fact that someone sinned, like, is, is a no-brainer, because he wouldn't be born like this. We're just curious, was it his sin, or was it his parents' sin? And, that's, and Jesus responds that it was nobody's sin. This was not the result of any person's sin. People are born with a disability, or people, we experience sickness or pain because we live in a sin-cursed world, and things are not as God had designed them. But it's not God's judgment on somebody to be born blind or deaf or to have a disability or to not be born that way but for a a, a disease to befall them. And so the Jewish leaders at this time would view this person with edema, this person who is swollen, who is retaining fluids as having been under the judgment of God and would have viewed this person as immoral, as ceremonially unclean because of the body's failure to eliminate the fluids that it should be eliminating. And so that guy's there too. Now look at verse 3. And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Just asks that question, just drops that out of the blue. Here's the thing. Ministering to someone who is sick is in no way, shape, or form a violation of the Sabbath. You can read your entire Old Testament, and you'll not find a single regulation that forbids helping a sick person on the Sabbath. Not a one. It's just not in there. However... Uh, rabbinic attachments and add-ons and traditions to God's perfect law. Them trying to almost improve upon God's law. Let's make it even holier. Let's make it even more strict. Let's build a fence around the law. Let's protect the law from it being broken. Because of that, they believed that God's law prohibited the treatment of a sick person on the Sabbath unless that person was in imminent danger of death if they were left, treated and, uh, if they were left untreated until the next day. And so you won't find that in the scriptures, but that's what people believe. The rabbis taught that if you treat someone who is sick on the Sabbath, sick but not dying, then you'd be, quote, unnecessarily working and therefore in violation of the Sabbath. That's not a biblical mandate at all, but that's their tradition. That's what they believe. That was their commonly held belief. So in verse 4, to Jesus' question, they remain silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. 
Verse 5, it says, And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not just immediately pull him out? Right? He's saying, like, surely you'd rescue your son. He's your son. He's your son every day of the week. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath day or not. If your son had fallen into a well, if your son was in danger of either being hurt or, or especially if he was dying, you would pull out your child. Surely you'd rescue your son. Surely you'd rescue your animal. Quite frankly, that animal costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. You wouldn't leave that animal until the next day to perhaps lose money on your prized investment or a very important piece of your livelihood. Surely you'd rescue your animal. Surely you'd rescue your son. Then in verse 6 it says, And they could not reply to these things. They were silent. That comes to the end of our text today, the end of what we're looking at. Here's my question. Why is Jesus so upset? It seems like a pretty good day, right? He's been invited to a meal. He's been invited to a meal of the most elite people in his neighborhood and his circles. Uh, you might say, you know, thus far we see that they don't, they don't like him, but now they're inviting him to a meal. Maybe, he's, maybe this is a, a good thing. Why is he so upset? Why would being invited to a meal, why does it just seems like he's just like kind of, just like picking a fight or, or, or trying to make an otherwise normal situation awkward? Look at verse 3. It says he responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Responded to what? Like there's absolutely no record of them having said anything. Not only did they not start the conversation, they never even participated in it. They never answered his questions. Verse 4 says they remained silent. Verse 6 says they could not reply to these things. Why is Jesus so upset? If you look where it says he took him and healed him in verse 4, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. You see how I just read that? Just kind of like he took him, he healed him, and he sent him away. I'm reading it that way because that's actually how it should be read. The Greek term used there for he took him is a pretty forceful term. It's like, come here, let me, let me heal you. I'm not saying he hit him over the head, but it wasn't just like when Jesus, you know, kneels down like next to somebody and lays his hands on them and you see all of this love and compassion. No doubt Jesus has compassion on this man. No doubt Jesus is making a point to people who are watching because he is actually willing to physically what? Touch him, even though everybody else would have thought, oh, he's unclean. So Jesus is still every bit as compassionate. Jesus is still every bit as loving. But he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. Come here. You're healed. Go on now. Which just doesn't seem like the way Jesus typically roles in a, in a situation like that. Saren and I have this uh, term that's unique to us that I'm now going to let you in on, uh, where she will say, are you about to have an Ikea moment? An Ikea moment. Um, and it's, it's, it's because I get a certain way in Ikea. Now, when Sarah wants to go out or she wants to run an errand, I actually, I enjoy going to different stores with her. I love spending time with her. I like that doesn't bore me. That doesn't, that doesn't get me all riled up. I like that. Ikea, uh, when we go to Ikea, though, something happens when I'm in Ikea. And it's not after a prescribed amount of time. It kind of hits me at, at different times 
depending on our time there, but she can apparently tell because apparently, I've never looked at my own face live, so apparently though, my face changes and I start to just be like, all right, can we leave? Are you ready? Like I'm just kind of, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the fact that it's a maze. I don't know if it's the fact that I'm surrounded by Swedish letters. I don't know what it is, but it's like, look, can we just, can we go? All right, can we, like I'm not, and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I would just love to go soon, elsewhere, anywhere. A a proctologist would be a relief from what I'm feeling. right. Like it doesn't really matter where. Can we just go elsewhere? I just want to go. I got the tea lights. Let's just go. The yellow batteries. I don't know what, it's just something about it. It's like, I don't know if it's just because I'm surrounded by that much DIY, build it yourself furniture with bed instructions. I don't know what it is. But I just got to, like, yeah, I just, if we could just maybe leave would be awesome. And the sooner the better. And I can't find the cash registers because this place is a maze. <laughs> and so Sarah will joke around if I just, if she senses that I'm kind of, and I'd love to think it doesn't happen often. You'd have to ask her. But if she senses I'm, like, bordering on, like, yeah, he's kind of, he's just, he's done. He's done. She'll say, like, we have an Ikea moment at your right. Like, do you need to sit down? Do you need, you know, is your blood sugar low? Have you eaten? Starts talking to me almost like I'm a child. Like, do you need a snack? Do you need a nap? <laughs> is Jesus having an Ikea moment? Like, is he just done? Just kind of ticked off? I've been out of heaven too long, man. I'm surrounded by idiots, by sinners. But I just want to just come here. I'll heal you and go. Like, let's just, let's just go. Let's get this done. He's not. He's not. This is all a setup. This is all a setup. First of all, verse 1 says Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, which means he was invited. Uh, A cursory look at the gospel shows that the Pharisees are not really the best friends of Jesus. And so when the Pharisees invite Jesus to a meal... We should be suspicious. Like, we should look at that and be like, that's not probably good. That's not normal. Something's up. Secondly, as I said earlier, the Pharisees would only invite someone to their gatherings if they thought that person was either an equal or someone who could perhaps raise their status. There's nothing we've read in Luke to make us believe that the Pharisees viewed Jesus as an equal, much less an upgrade. If they invited him, they're up to something. Finally... Why in the world is this sick guy there? Right? What's up with the guy who has dropsy? He's sick. He's a social outcast. They think he's ceremonially unclean because he's retaining every fluid he should not be retaining. And yet he's there. So he was also invited. So why would Jesus be invited? And why would this guy be invited? It's a setup. And it all serves their agenda, which is grounded in their wholehearted belief that ministering to or healing a man on the Sabbath is wrong, which there is no scriptural basis for at all. And Jesus knows it, and he's understandably ticked off. And so when Luke says in verse 3 that Jesus responded to them, he was responding to their challenge to his authority as Lord of all, as Lord of the Sabbath, all rooted in their false teaching. I mean, think about it. They set Jesus up. Think of how warped this is. They set Jesus up to heal a man so they could prove he wasn't God. Did you just restate that sentence in your head? Like, write it out. I know what we'll do. We'll get him to to heal a man miraculously to prove that he's not the son of God. Muha-ha-ha-ha. That's how deluded they are by their false teaching. Any normal person would see a healing and think, I bet you're kind of special. 
right? Like I, I, or, or I bet you have some connection to God since you just healed a man in my presence. The Pharisees are so deluded, so steeped in their false teachings rooted in tradition instead of God's word that they see Jesus heal a man and they're like, got him, ha-ha, see? I knew he wasn't the son of God. How do you know? He healed a guy on the Sabbath. Clearly not God. Jesus isn't in a bad mood. He just hates bad theology, which takes us to our first point. You need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. You need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. And that's something that I really want to drive home today. I'll say it again. You need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. Listen. I'm well aware of the fact that we live in a day and age where words like inclusive, tolerant, empathy, love, and unity are all the rage. And they're very nice words. They're good words. There's nothing wrong with those words. But listen to me. Your Bible does not support inclusivity, tolerance of error, and a willingness to embrace false teaching in the supposed name of unity or love, or peace. You need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. And let me see if I can explain why with an example. One of the most evil and deadly false teachers, certainly in the last 50 years, was a man by the name of Jim Jones, founder of the People's Temple. He deified himself claiming to be the reincarnation of such religious and political figures as Jesus, Gandhi, Buddha, and Lenin. He was an atheist and he was a communist. He ridiculed biblical Christianity, mocked the God of Scripture, and derided the Bible as a paper idol. He was unapologetic about his Marxist socialist agenda and sought to promote it by infiltrating the church. Like when Paul left Ephesus that we read about in Acts chapter 20, he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Jones was one such wolf, without a doubt. Eventually, Jim Jones led his followers to Guyana, where they founded the now infamous Jonestown Settlement. And there, on November 18th, 1978, Jones ordered a mass murder-suicide that claimed the lives of 909 commune members, 304 of which were children, almost all of whom died by drinking a Kool-Aid-like substance. It actually wasn't Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid laced with cyanide. It shocked the world. It rocked the world and has forever immortalized the phrase and the title of today's sermon, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid to refer to not buying into something so fast just at face value. Parents feeding poison to their children before they take it themselves. But you need to take false teaching as seriously as Jesus does. And you respond and you say, Pastor, that's that's horrible. That's tragic. It might even bring a tear to your eye thinking about it. But you might also look at me and say, however, that's a bit 
of an overblown analogy to today's text where the Pharisees' false teaching is that the guy shouldn't be healed on a Saturday. They're both errors, but they pale in comparison, and I would look at you and respectfully disagree. The world agrees that what happened in a South American jungle was a tragedy. Nobody would dispute that. However, if you're a Christian, you should know that the real tragedy was not that so many people died once, but that they died twice. That the real tragedy was not that so many people died physically, but that they died eternally because they embraced false teaching instead of loving Jesus Christ. Which is why I look before you today and say, you need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. Because while all false teaching, while all heresies may not lead people to an untimely physical death, it will lead people to eternal death. It will be a distraction from the gospel, a hindrance to the gospel, which is why you need to take false teaching as seriously as Jesus does. You may not think this is really an issue among evangelical, whatever that means, circles today. You might think this is not an issue really among people who would claim themselves to be biblical Christians. But as God's providence would have it, Christianity Today published an article just this last week entitled, The Top Five Heresies Among Evangelicals. Repeat that title again. The Top Five Heresies Among evangelicals, where evangelicals would be surveyed as to what do you believe about these things. Uh, R.C. Sproul is famous for saying everyone's a theologian, but he would never have said that everybody's a good theologian. And so this is kind of, it's put out by Ligonier Ministries, which was R.C. Sproul's ministry, and uh, kind of surveys people like, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? People who would claim to be Christians. So it's not surveying the, the culture at large. It's like, hey, if you're a Christian, would you fill this thing out? Okay, so this is among Christians. 56% of respondents say they don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. More than half of the people surveyed said, we don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. 73% of respondents believe Jesus was created by God. Which leads to the next one that 43% of respondents believe that Jesus is not God. 60% of respondents believe the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. 57% of respondents believe that humans aren't sinful by nature. Now, again, I'll grant to you, it's highly unlikely that these people will be led to an untimely physical death by believing these false teachings. But please understand, with 100% certainty, People who believe in these false teachings will meet the same spiritual death as the follower of Jim Jones. They won't have the taste of Kool-Aid in their mouths when they arrive in hell, but they will arrive in hell. That's why you need to take false teaching as seriously as Jesus does. You need to understand that if people don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, that they're not believing in the exclusivity of Christ, that they're not embracing the true message of the gospel, that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in John 14, 6, they just think some people say the, some people say a. He's just a way to God. And they totally ignore his next phrase in that same verse. No one comes to the Father except by me. And friends, you can't just shrug your shoulders and be like, ah, who among us, you know, we all mess up a little. 
I get it that we don't have to agree on everything. It's fine. Uh, I don't agree on paedo-baptism, but by believing in baptizing babies, as Presbyterians do, I don't believe them what they believe. I don't see what they say in Scripture. But they're not going to... That doesn't stand in the way of the gospel. That's not a justification issue. Do you understand that? They're baptizing babies. I'm not baptizing babies. I think they're wrong. They think I'm wrong. We can all hold hands and skip through the grass together because we agree on justification by faith alone through grace alone. They believe on the Scriptures alone. We, we line up on the things that matter according to justification, that matter according to how one is saved. And so we just look at each other thinking we're all in the same family and everybody has weird cousins and odd uncles. But it's not a heresy. So it's not saying we have to all agree and walk in lockstep with one another. But false teachings, heresies, need to be taken seriously. You need to understand that if you believe that Jesus was created by God, you believe that Jesus is not God. You need to understand if you believe that Jesus is not God, then you just believe that he's a really great man. And that his sacrifice on the cross would be the same as any other person's sacrifice on the cross. Which would ultimately amount to nothing. You need to understand that if you don't believe that humans are sinful by nature, you don't believe that everybody needs a savior. And so these are important things. This is not like let's debate over these things. Let's quibble over little things. These are important things. Because by believing these things, you show you don't have an understanding of the scriptures. You don't have an understanding of the gospel. That's why you need to take false teaching as seriously as God does. I mean, if you look in your outline, I put some illustrations or some examples. The Bible contains vivid and powerful language in reference to false teachers. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as mute dogs who are unable to bark, Isaiah 56 and verse 10. Hosea says they're demented fools. Uh, Zephaniah says they're reckless and treacherous men. Look at Jesus himself calls false teachers ravenous wolves in Matthew chapter 7. That's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Blind guides for the blind, Matthew chapter 15. He calls them hypocrites, fools, whitewashed tombs full of blood, uh, full of bones, serpents, and brood of vipers. And that's all in one chapter. And elsewhere in the New Testament, they're called savage wolves. That's Paul in Acts chapter 20. Slaves of their own appetites, Romans chapter 16. And straight up servants of Satan, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And so what about you? What in your life shows you take seriously the need to guard against false teaching? If you do it, you'll probably to some degree feel mean. Uh, you'll feel judgy. You're, you know, you're not part of the love, peace, and hair grease, can't we all just get along crowd. You'll... You'll, you'll say, no, actually, I don't believe that person's a Christian based on what they said. You could say nobody knows their hearts, and that's fine. But when somebody says something, we know that Matthew 12 and verse 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when somebody says something about what they believe about Jesus, it matters. What in your life shows you take seriously the need to guard against false teaching? They need to really sharpen your mind in God's word. Now, you don't need to like hunt for false teachers. It's like we leave here like <clears throat> pitchforks and torches and stuff like that. Don't, don't do that. You don't need to do that. But you got to know one when you see one. 
You got to know one when you see one. Second Peter 2 and verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You don't need to hunt for heresy, for, for, for false teachers, but you need to know one when you see one. So in your outline, I put three things to consider, three ways to recognize a false teacher. Things that I want you to keep in mind, that I want you to be asking yourself as you hear different teaching, particularly in our day and age where you could listen to a variety of teaching, right? Gone are the days where people join a church and just decide to dedicate themselves to that teaching because now people listen to podcasts and watch videos of sermons and there's, everything's just kind of out there. And so that's, that's all well and good. I'm not against that. I'm not coming against that. But you need to know certain things to look out for to make sure that you understand, is this person rightly dividing the word of truth. Three ways to recognize a false teacher. Number one, false teachers won't speak the truth about Jesus or will actually avoid him altogether. False teachers will not speak the truth about Jesus or will avoid him altogether. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Second John verse 9 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. First John 2 and verse 22 says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. False teachers won't speak about uh, Jesus, or won't speak truth about Jesus, or actually will just avoid him altogether. You'll start to see as they speak, their, as they teach what they teach, what they say about Jesus doesn't exactly line up, and then instead of actually trying to line themselves up with Jesus in the teaching of Scripture, you'll find that they avoid him altogether. Uh, they might refer to what he did. They might refer to the fact that he was a phenomenal teacher, which he was, what with being the Son of God. They might refer to the fact that he lived a, an exemplary life, which he did, what with being the Son of God. But slowly but surely, you will see, it happens all the time, they start to veer away from Jesus, either in their teaching, meaning they're not talking truth about Jesus, or they'll just start avoiding him altogether and start talking about their soapbox issues. False teachers won't speak the truth about Jesus or will avoid him altogether. Number two, false teachers will preach a different gospel than the one found in the Bible. A different gospel than the one found in the Bible. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is in your outline. When Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what people need to believe in in order to be saved. If it's this plus something, it's not the gospel. That was the problem Paul had with the Galatian church. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9, also in your outline, Paul says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Only believe the simple yet profound gospel. It's not Jesus 
plus my good works. It's not Jesus plus my good outweighing my bad. Now, do we care about good works? Absolutely. We're saved unto good works. That's what God wants us to do to better reflect him. But we're not saved because of our good works. Isn't that potato, potato? No, 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 no. No, potato, Lego, right? Like they're, they're, they're two totally different things. So it's not Jesus plus my good works. We are commanded to be baptized. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Should believers be baptized? The answer is yes. If a believer is not baptized, does that mean they were not saved? The answer is no. If you believe in the fact that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ plus baptism, you don't believe Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. Then more times than not, when you talk to those people, when you ask them about their testimony or why they love the Lord or their assurance of salvation, they talk less about Christ and more about what they did. Less about Christ and more about the decision they made. Less, Less about Christ and more about the baptism that they received. False teachers will preach a different gospel than the one found in the Bible. And I want you to understand, this is not like, let's go out and pick a fight. Again, I'm not encouraging you to be on the hunt. But I want you to know one when you see one. Because all false teaching, particularly as it pertains to the gospel, is a huge stumbling block unto death for people who believe. Remember, there's two tragedies in the Jim Jones massacre. One was that not over 900 people died an untimely earthly death, but the other one that we understand is that 900 people died and did not embrace Christ, that people were that deluded. Three ways to recognize a false teacher. Number three, false teachers will not grow in Christ-like character. False teachers will not grow in Christ-like character. Jude verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Matthew 7 verses 19 and following says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. False teachers will not grow in Christ-like character. Because at the end of the day, they may want to care about growing in Christ-like character, but they really don't care about growing in Christ-like character because they really don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they can fake it for a little while. We can all fake it for a little while. And again, I'm not saying they won't be perfect because you're not perfect and I'm not perfect and nobody's perfect. But the desire to bear fruit and to truly bear fruit that it would be seen, that it would be noted, that you could see Christ working in another person's life, which I'm sure you have an example of if you're a Christian. And if you're living in community, which I hope you are. If you've been in community group, for example, for any length of time, you could say, I, this is how Jesus manifests himself through this person. This person is so loving. This person is so has such a hunger for the word. This person has such a desire. Like, you could list, this person is so patient. This person is so kind. This person has grown in self-control. The fruits of the Spirit that we see listed in Galatians 5. And when it comes to false teachers, you will notice that that fruit is lacking. Another thing you'll notice is that they likely won't let people get close enough to them to see whether there's fruit or not. They keep a safe distance from people. Their, Their faith becomes personal all of a sudden and they don't really want to talk about it and they're so busy doing their teaching that they don't want to let anybody in really close and many times the the more you look at it and the more you see it even if it's after a long period of time you realize there's no fruit 
on this tree. There was fruit that was like stapled on, which is weird. There's this fruit that was like, it was kind of fake for a little while, but then you really saw the real thing. But this person's not bearing real fruit. Why? Because they don't really love Jesus because they are a false teacher. You need to take false teaching as seriously as Jesus does. And here's the other thing that brings us to our second and final point. You need to know the best way to spot a counterfeit is to study the real thing, which is Jesus Christ and his word. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to study Jesus Christ and his word. Listen, I'm, I love classes. I love what you can get even for free online through online teaching. I love that you could take apologetics courses and I love that you can learn more about how to reason with people and how to give them a reason for the faith, a defense for the faith that is within you. I think that is a good and godly thing. But please understand, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to become all the more familiar with the real thing. The best way to become familiar with Jesus Christ, to know when someone's saying something that doesn't really match up with the Jesus you know, is not necessarily to go and take that class. It's to be communing with him as often as you can, consistently, hopefully daily, to some degree, with his word, that you would read the Bible. How much of it? All of it. So that you would become more and more familiar with Jesus Christ. More and more familiar so that you can even be able to say, you know, I don't really know the answer to that, but it doesn't strike me as true. It would be great if you could just, boom, pull up a chapter and verse. But just to say, that doesn't match what I know of Jesus. I'm going to look into it more. That doesn't sound like it's consistent with what I've read in the scriptures. I think I need to look into it more. That's the best way, the absolute best way to spot a counterfeit is become not so familiar with the counterfeits, but to become so familiar with the real thing, which is Jesus Christ and his word. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. In the Greek, it literally says cutting it straight, right? Knowing how to cut a straight line, rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. And the best way to do that is through the word of God. And here's something else, not in your outline, a little bit of a bonus. The best way to do it is through the word of God with the people of God. The word of God with the people of God. It's not necessarily for you to launch off on this like solo Christian crusade where you're like, it's just me and my Bible, it's just me and Jesus, it's just me and church, it's just, I just listen and I leave, I just listen and I leave. The best way for you to do that is with the word of God, and it's even better if you do that with the people of God, if you're in community with people so that you can better understand that you have people to bounce something off of, that you can say, have you ever come across this? What do you think the Bible says about that? Can you help me with this? There's always an area where Somebody's dealt with something that you haven't dealt with. Or somebody's thought through something that maybe you're thinking through something for the first time. And that sharpening of one another, that iron sharpening iron, doesn't happen with iron just being sharpened by the word. There is a sharpening that God wants to do in your life that's not going to happen with just you and your Bible. It's going to happen with you, the word of God, and the people of God. And the best way to spot a counterfeit is to become so familiar and in love with the real thing that a counterfeit stands out to you and you're like, that's not the real thing. That's not good. 
And so what about you? What practices of Bible intake have helped you rightly handle the word of truth? How have you seen God use the people of God and the word of God in your life such that you would become more familiar with Jesus Christ and be able to guard against false teaching so that you might honor Christ by taking seriously, just as serious as he does, false teaching, by loving just as much as he does the truth of his word so that you might be better able to walk with Christ and to make him known. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the time that we have to spend in your word. We're grateful for having a truth to know, for having the love of Christ to compel us to walk with you in a way that is honoring to you. And so, Lord, we pray, would you guard us, your church, against false teaching? Uh, would you help us to take it as seriously as Jesus did? That we wouldn't, we wouldn't grow to be crotchety, curmudgeony people who have to think everybody has to be like us, think like us, talk like us, but that we would have such a desire for the sincere, genuine, true, pure word of God that as we encounter error, we would know it, be able to protect ourselves from it, and also be able to help people to understand and walk in your truth. May we love not just truth from error, not just right from wrong, but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us to come to you through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.